Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today, more than ever, it's crucial for colleges and universities to hire the right leaders for the right moment in time. Higher education is facing many complex challenges and finding the person to lead your campus through the next five to 10 years or longer may be one of the top responsibilities for members of boards of trustees. In December, 2021, the Penn State University Board announced the selection of Neely Bendapudi, current president at the University of Louisville, as the next president at Penn State. She will assume the role from Eric Barron at the end of the spring 2022 semester. There are many good reasons why understanding how a president is selected is so important. First, those who lead the process are important fiduciaries of the university. Secondly, Penn State underwent a large inclusive listening process involving many constituencies, including James Franklin, the head football coach. I'm joined today by two members of the Pennsylvania State University Board of Trustees who each played important yet different roles in the search process of locating and hiring their new president. The search culminated a, month, a months long process of the committee, search firm and other key players working collaboratively to arrive at this moment. We also talk about the new board task force on intercollegiate athletics and the important topics they are wrestling with this year. My guests today are David Kleppinger, Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees and the Committee Co-Chair, and Barbara Duran, Trustee, two of the two, 19 member committees members entrusted with this important task. The search was also aided by Spencer Stewart, an executive search firm. As much as they are allowed to, they will share the process and perspective with you of looking for a great fit in a president. <music> Well, Dave and Barbara, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you guys. Karen, delighted to be here. Excellent, excellent. So before we get into the world of trustees, let's talk about what your like real jobs are outside of being a trustee. Um, Dave, why don't you go first? What do you do in real life? Well, fortunately, I'm retired. Uh, so I'm a recovered lawyer, uh, retired at the end of 2020. And uh, my wife always jokes with me that I uh, gave up a full-time paying job for a uh, full-time non-paying job as vice chair of the board of trustees. So um, I had a good run as an energy and utility lawyer, but now I'm happy to be giving back to the university. That's great. And Barb, how about you? We never see you on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Just occasion. I was on Monday, as a matter of fact. Okay. And, and one thing I want to mention about Dave, he actually took an apartment in State College so he could be right there. So he's really been a very hands-on vice chair, which is terrific. That's great. Yeah. Great. But um, my actual paying job, I have my own wealth advisory and asset management firm called BDA Capital. And I operate um, primarily out of New York City, although often uh, living in Connecticut these days because of COVID uh, relief. And, but I started out as a journalist way back when, and I wrote a lot on women's sports. I was of that era when Title IX had, uh, was a Title IX activist and it got passed and it revolutionized women's sports. And so, you know, that was my original start in, in business. And again, full disclosure, Barb and I go way back in field hockey. Uh, so we've known each other for a very long time. So I'm thrilled to have you both here today. Let's start at the beginning. I assume the board was told that current president Eric Barron was going to retire 
And of course, then everybody wants to know what's next. So David, I know you are actively involved as a co-chair of the larger group, but you're also a leader of the group called the Next Gen Penn State Advisory Group. Tell us about the thought process behind forming that group in addition to the 19 member search advisory committee and having an outside search firm. Wow, that's a lot in one question. I know. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the board recognized that with Eric's tenure coming to an end and the landscape of higher edu education changing so dramatically, whether it's the demographics or uh, a variety of other issues related to higher education, um, that we felt we had to solicit input from a real broad base of our constituencies, students, faculty, deans, trustees, alumni, donors, uh, friends, community leaders, to see what they were thinking about the future of Penn State and, and what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, what are we looking for in a new president, what type of characteristics should they have. And we felt that if we did that broad-based uh, reach out to people to give us input, then it would make our uh, eventual recruitment and selection committee job a little bit easier. And it was a terrific success, if I must say. Um, we had like 18,000 responses to the survey. Um, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to Spencer Stewart for assisting us in developing the content of the survey. Uh, they were the executive search firm that we retained, and, and without them, we probably would have been at a little bit of a loss in terms of the right questions to be asking. Uh, so that was the predicate, if you will, to our search. We did not kick off the search until that report was completed um, because it really formed the basis, and I think it may be later in, in our podcast today, about the job description and specification. Uh, that job description specification was lifted almost entirely out of the, the qualifications and characteristics that the survey group was looking for in a new president. Interesting. Barb, what was your take on the, on the formation of the, of the wide-ranging information gathering? Well, I think, first off, it was, it was an excellent process in terms of finding out what do we need. And it wasn't just going to be by popular vote. It really gave us a lot to think about in the committee that looked at it. But it was also important to really establish trust in the process across all constituencies. Because when you look at failed presidential searches through time and what other universities um, have done, it often comes down to that, whether it's faculty or students you know, who weren't involved or didn't feel involved and the candidate or final candidates that come to the fore, you know, are given a hard time and sometimes have to be withdrawn. So we, that was also a very important goal was to make sure that people understood the process. It was inclusive. It was wide ranging. We had every constituency, um, whether it was alumni or staff or students or faculty, everybody. And so it really legitimized the process. And I do know that they did, as David just said, kept true to what they found. So there was no undue influence by uh, one or two power players, whoever that, that might be considered. I think and I counted 47 members, 47 members. 47 members, members and Karen, yeah. you've been involved in higher ed for a long time. And you know, just the fact that we got 1800 responses from our faculty to that survey. Uh -huh. So the, the amount and the quality of faculty input that we received was almost unheard of. And I, I didn't mention at the beginning how early we started. Your question said, let's start at the beginning. 
this was October of 2020 when when we first named the uh, and solicited uh, members for the next gen Penn State Advisory Group and established the the recruitment and selection committee. And thank goodness we started that early because the the market for presidents, as our consultant always said, was frothy and still is frothy because COVID has caused so many presidents to decide to retire early or to move on to a different academic position. So we knew we were going to be in a hot market and, and wanted to be out there in front to get our person first. Yeah, that makes Karen, sense. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, Karen, that and what Dave makes is a very interesting point because not only did we start early because we wanted to thoroughly research what is the right process to put in place, you know, but, you know, as it turns out, it was, uh, it was, we had to speed up the process once we were in it because exactly what Dave said, suddenly there was a huge amount of openings and we did not want to lose access to the best candidates. So we, uh, we sped it up once we uh, got that, gener that generational report in. So that brings up a good point. That means uh, President Barron had to let you know with enough time to be able to do that. Is, is that correct? Yes, he, he knew his, his contract was expiring in June of 2022. And, and he let us know early on that he was not going to request an extension, that that was when he wanted to retire. So fortunately, we had plenty of lead time. Yeah. And now we have plenty of time for an overlap with President Barron and his successor, Neely Bendapudi, to to learn each other and learn more about the university. What a gift. That's, that's really important. Speaking of complex systems, the Penn State campus is not just one campus in the middle of Pennsylvania. It's 23 Commonwealth campuses spread out all over the, the, the state. And most people don't realize that the president is in charge of those as well because there are chancellors on those campuses. So how do you include and introduce that piece into a presidential search? Well, we certainly questioned all of our candidates on that. And, and I will say they were all very well prepared for the, the, the one Penn State system that we operate as one university with 23 campuses. Uh, but I don't know that anyone can be adequately prepared for the president of Penn State because there's not another institution that is just like that, right? Um, so you go, I go back to the qualities and characteristics laid out in the next gen Penn State report and say to our candidates and, and in the interview process, we had to assess, do, do they meet those characteristics and qualities to translate into this very unique position as president of Penn State University. Yeah, and what's interesting, Karen, too, is when you look at the history you know, of our Commonwealth campuses, why they started, it was really to bring higher ed to the rural areas. And of course, this system has developed all over the state, and, and it's something that we, you know, we need to look at and are looking at because each one has a unique function within the area they serve, but yet it's tied to the broader campus. And I think if you look at our, our long-term strategic plan, we want to really make it one, all one Penn State. We want to make sure the curriculum, you know, um, is similar. I mean, because and professors and all that. So we've got uh, a lot to do there, you know, in yeah. terms of that. But it is one thing that all candidates brought up and, and different ones had uh, different insights about it. So that was, that was quite interesting. And of course, Neely's uh, were, were pretty informative. 
Absolutely. So continuing on that theme, what kind of oversight and responsibility for the success of all those entities does the president herself bear? Ultimately, it is going to be Neely's responsibility. Now there's a, a, uh, an administrative network, as you mentioned, each, each campus has a chancellor, the law schools have deans, the College of Medicine has a dean. Uh, the deans, of course, report up through the provost. The chancellors report up to the senior vice president and chancellor of all the Commonwealth campuses. Uh, that's a new individual now, Kelly Austin. Madeline Haynes had been in that position for years and years and just retired. Um, so that's how things get up to the president. Um, but one of the things that President Barron did, and I know it is very early on in President Ben Deputy's agenda, as she has her overlap in March and April with Eric, uh, is to visit each and every Commonwealth campus. Um, and it means so much to those uh, Commonwealth campuses, the students, the faculty, the chancellors. Uh, I've tried to get to some of them myself. I know Barb's been to some of them. We go to one of them every year for one of our board meetings. Uh, this year it will be at the York campus. Um, so that is another way where we get on-site uh, information from the Commonwealth campuses and obviously feed that up through the president, the provost, and the senior VP and chancellor of Commonwealth campuses. So since this is a podcast about trustees and presidents providing oversight to intercollegiate athletics, and in looking at the rosters of both of the search committees, I noticed there was one quote unquote athletics person in total, head football coach, James Franklin, who was invited to participate. Help us understand the role that he played and what is expected of his relationship with the new president. Well, when the, the board was establishing the 47 member advisory group for <laughs> Next Gen Penn State, we felt we really did need an athletics perspective um, Coach Franklin has been at the university uh, even longer than our athletic director, so we felt he was a terrific candidate to, to have on that group, and he was an active participant. Um, I think the objective, part of the objective there was to assure that going forward, we would maintain and or build upon the alignment that we feel is needed between the board, the administration, intercollegiate athletics slash AD and our coaches and donors. And, and that alignment, uh, I think we were looking at to help facilitate with Coach Franklin being exposed to all those constituency groups during this process. Barb, anything you'd like to add as a former athlete yourself? <laughs> On the process, no. I think, I think Dave captured it well, because you really, because you know, football, we have a huge athletic program with 29 different sports, but obviously football, you know, is a very big draw and it's so important, not only in terms of, of uh, donor dollars and team spirit, but it's, you know, a big reputational um, issue, you know, in terms of making sure Penn State is squeaky clean and uh, it ties into so many aspects of the university. Very important that the head football coach, uh, who happens to be Franklin right now, does have input into the presidential selection. Because there, there will be who knows what issues may arise that you'll you'll need a close working relationship. Was there any involvement by the athletic director as well in the search? Maybe later on down the process. No, she we didn't have direct involvement by the athletic director. Um, we did speak with her about the process going as it was ongoing, but not a direct involvement with the selection committee. 
And, and Coach Franklin was not on the recruitment and selection committee either. He was only on the next gen advisory group. Next gen. Right, right, right. Yeah, which actually, Karen, may be different at some schools. I mean, we know from President Barron, then he talked about when he was recruited at, uh, was it Florida State? You know, years ago, there were actually um, football donors on the committee that helped in the selection, and we would never allow that. You know, right. this is not about picking somebody because of football. It's picking someone who has the interest and, and capability to run one of the largest universities in the world. And, and one of the other unique things about the Florida uh, state system is that their search processes are public, um, which is problematic in some ways. Um, and, and one of the things that we were able to to accomplish throughout our process was respecting the confidentiality of all the candidates. Um, obviously, most of those candidates, if not all, were sitting presidents elsewhere. Um, and, you know, it, it's a, a small club out there in academia, and, and you could really damage someone's career if there were a leak as to who might be looking at the Penn State position. Um, so, but it's unlike other, other states where the process by law has to be public, and, and that's, that makes it difficult on candidates. For sure, absolutely. So while we're talking college athletics, um, Dave, you're the chair of the board's subcommittee on intercollegiate athletics. Tell us a little bit about that, where that idea came from, what kinds of things you talk about, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we, we're calling it a task force and not a standing committee because okay. um, we're not sure if it's going to continue uh, forever. Although given the rapidly changing landscape of college athletics, it's going to be around for quite a while. Um, but when we, when we as, a, as a board, we're looking at, at our athletic program, and it's one of only 15 or so that are totally self-sustaining in the country. It gets no additional support from our educational and general fund. The, the revenues support all those 31 sports that Barb mentioned. Um, but we also saw that landscape changing with uh, the name, image, and likeness developments, um, with the conference realignments and, and schools moving from one to the next. Um, so we felt we had to dig a little deeper into it. We, our, our oversight of athletics was spread among a number of committees. Some was done in finance, business, capital planning. Some was done in audit and risk. Some was done in legal and compliance. But there wasn't sort of an overall big picture of um, our intercollegiate athletics department. So we felt creating a task force would be necessary to keep the board uh, updated as, as much as possible on the rapid developments. So uh, the things that have dominated it have been name, image, and likeness, yeah. uh, the finances of our intercollegiate athletics, um, and the, the conference realignments and, and affiliations, if you will, that have occurred. Um, so Penn State and Big Ten went into a loose affiliation, if you will, with the ACC and Pac-12 to potentially schedule crossover football and basketball games. There's already a Big Ten ACC challenge on, on, in the basketball season. Um, and, and that was somewhat of a response to the, the changing landscape of the SEC and, and the uh, Big 12. Makes sense. Barb, what are your thoughts on, uh, on this uh, growth of the task force? More and more boards are doing this kind of thing. Yeah, and I know it's it's been a, a big question. There's been some trustees for a long time have wanted to have oversight of athletics, 
And then others who felt that it really, as Dave just said, it was decentralized in a way across committees. You know, for instance, after the Sandusky um, scandal, there were a lot of changes made, not only at the board level in terms of committees, but more importantly, you know, in the university itself, you know, much heavier compliance, you know, and compliance separate, you know, in the athletics department reporting up to the larger um, athletics um, compliance area, um, finances always report up to the CFO of the university, you know, the financial person in athletics. So there was felt there was, you know, there were huge changes um, in oversight and compliance made at the university level in that time frame. And so, um, but I think as Dave just said, given all the big changes that are happening and we're trying to envision what is the future going to be like with NIL and if we um, have to end up paying athletes, what does that mean and how is it going to change things and what do we need to do? I mean, as Dave said, we have been fortunate enough to be self-supporting, you know, but, you know, how does that change if we suddenly have to pay salaries and all that? So we're really trying to get ahead of it, but it's, as you know, I mean, you're an expert in this area and trying to keep a step ahead, but very, very difficult to know how things will evolve. And certainly you've been very involved in the NCA. You know what's happened. They changed their constitution. They've changed a lot. There's the night um, um, intercollegiate athletic um, commission report that was very helpful. But ultimately, I think everybody's reaffirming the values of education, safety, and health of the athlete. And how do we support that? But you know, it's also obviously gets into much deeper issues of revenue sharing and how do we support college college sports and maintaining the educational values, which has always been a primary thing for Penn State. And, and we also felt that, that by having one place with the ICA task force, uh, to the extent the board can help with that alignment, as I mentioned earlier, between and among the board, ICA, the administration, the president, even faculty all along the line so that everyone's moving in the same direction for intercollegiate athletics, which as Barb already mentioned, is really a gateway to the university. And and people will start looking at a university, some people at least, um, based on their athletic program success um, and a variety of other things, but, but it can be a gateway to enhancing the overall level of the university academically and athletically. Sure, sure. Well, one thing that, that I'm keeping my eye on is this change in the, in the constitution because of the Supreme Court ruling from mm -hmm. last June, which is really gonna put more responsibility on the conferences. So I'm just curious, has the Big 10 talked with you all about what that might look like, how the Big 10 might have to make its own decisions as compared to the SEC or the ACC? Has that come up at all? Uh, certainly uh, our athletic director and senior VP, Sandy Barber is very active in the Big Ten. Um, yep. And she was on the NCAA Constitution Committee uh, and, and is very well respected throughout the country. Uh, so that is where those two occur uh, between and among the athletic directors at their conferences and between and among the presidents at their conferences. And then they really report back to our board as to what has transpired. The board itself is not directly involved in, in those discussions. So Dr. Bendapudi is coming from an Atlantic Coast Conference School, the University of Louisville, and a member of the Power Five Conference, but some might argue the ACC is a basketball conference, not a football conference. So how do you feel like she's going to make the transition into the Big Ten, which is, of course, known for its football? Barb, why don't you start? 
know, you know, I think Neely has made um, big transitions before. She certainly did it when she went to Louisville. You know, it was both in the, the size of the school, the programs she inherited. The basketball scandal was had been ongoing for three years, was just wrapping up. So, you know, she had to deal. It, was, it wasn't even about basketball per se in terms of what she had to deal with there. So it's really about how do you handle sports and what are your values? I mean, ultimately, that's what's important to us in terms of any any president we would hire. What are their values in terms of sports? You know, we don't want somebody who's like, ah, sports at, at all costs and football. No, and we, I think, uh, appreciate that her values are education, number one. And that's something Penn State's been very proud of. So we don't, we don't really see an issue. And I know Dave has some um, insights to there about, um, because she has, there's been a loose association, you know, with the, um, the ACC and others. And he can maybe talk a little bit more about that, but she's been very involved um, at some very high levels in terms of sports governance. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's was the current ACC board vice chair, if you will, of the, of the athletic conference in, during her presidency. So she's well-versed in athletics. She's a huge, uh, fan of, of athletics, uh, but first and foremost, it's the student athlete. And as Barb said, uh, we think that the philosophy of the ACC and the Big Ten are similar in that regard. Um, I think Clemson might have a little problem with you saying that it's a basketball conference. But, uh, uh, Dabo would not be too happy with that representation, but but you're, you're right. They're, they're from top to bottom in that conference they're no more known more for basketball than football but they've had great success with some of their top echelon football programs um, so I see a lot of similarities in the two conferences um, and, uh, and and I, I don't envision any transitional challenges really for Neely in that regard uh, that that sounds reasonable to me I, we got to make sure we know uh, what's going on when Penn State plays Ohio State you know I mean that, that's a big game so. <laughs> We sure are clear on that. Okay. And Karen, also, we've been told by Neely's husband, he loves all sports, so he will be an avid fan at every single sport. Excellent. Yes, Excellent. yes he is. Excellent. Maybe we'll see part of the hiring a... criteria, but. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll see him at a field hockey game. <laughs> better be. That's right. So one of the things that when I worked at the Big Ten was really unique is how often the positions from different schools would interact with each other. Presidents met regularly, ADs met regularly, uh, senior associate ADs met regularly, athletic medicine met, met regularly. Do the trustees do that in the Big Ten? I've, I've always been curious. We really don't. It, it would only be on an episodic basis uh, to the extent that any one of our trustees may have a personal friendship or relationship with a trustee at one of the other Big Ten schools. So uh, there really is not that, uh, you know, cross-pollination, if you will, among trustees that, that I've been aware of in my five years on the board. Barb's been on the board longer. Maybe she's had some exposure, but I know I haven't. No, well, Karen, it's, it's interesting when you ask that question, you know, I, I think, well, why don't we? We should. And I'll tell you what happened. We had, you know, we played Auburn in football this year. And amazingly, the University of Auburn trustees invited us to a cocktail party they hosted at State College. It was a home game for us. And I loved that, you know, and they had the chair there. They had people who'd been on the board for a long time and it was quite interesting, you know, so lots of, you know, obviously a, a lot of trash talk about football went on, but it was, uh, I thought, you know, we really should do this because it can be helpful. 
You know, if we'd had even during the presidential search um, more contacts to call their trustees who had just gone through a presidential search, things like that. So I, I think it's not a bad idea that Dave and I'll have to talk about uh, offline here. <laughs> well, of course, the Big Ten also has the Academic Alliance, which I think is one of the strongest entities in the country at the college and university level. And it really should be something that every conference does. <clears throat> Excuse me. Any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on the Academic Alliance? Well, I, I think it's a direction to go. I mean, there's clearly the the, the pressure on student athletes today uh, to perform and the time commitment that they, they have to make. Um, you can lose sight of the academic and core mission of the institutions. And, and as long as the academic alliances remain strong, that won't get lost. Um, and Barb played three sports and somehow still graduated. So, um, yeah, but, well, we don't know if that was barely or not, but <laughs> that's great. So we talked a little bit about the changing dynamics at division one college athletics. Where do you see this heading? Like if I were to say in five years, where are we going to be? What do you think the big 10 is going to look like? Do you think it's going to have more schools? Do you think it'll be, do you think we'll get one of the things that I think is I think we might eventually get to four conferences with 16 schools so that we have 64 teams right now we have 65 in the in the in the power five I think we might get to that point that's one of my unsolicited opinions well what do you guys think that's Dave, a tough question any, yeah that is that is <laughs> Um, it, it, it seems to me that the, the NCAA itself is becoming less and less relevant and, and the conferences are becoming more relevant. So uh, the, the, the shift of authority and enforceability and compliance, I think, is going to become more localized at the conference level. Um, the, the composition of the conferences, I think, is anyone's guess. I, I just can't really predict that. Um, but your, your hypothetical is not far from what could be a reality in my mind, four conferences, 16 each. Yeah. And I, and I, Karen, I think that a lot, we, it's hard to know right now because there's so many changes, like what is NIL going to do? I mean, some schools may be, if they're near an urban center, who knows, they have a huge donor network. They may be much, come much more powerful because of that. And how do you offset that? you know, or the revenue sharing issues. I mean, I know you've talked about a luxury um, tax or caps, hard caps, soft caps that some of the, the pro leagues use. Yeah. And, and what, you know, what does happen if we have to pay our athletes? You know, does that mean, um, you know, it changes the, the uh, constitution of the audience itself because they're now paid athletes? I mean, it's no longer just college, rah, rah. I don't know. I think that the changes we will see unfolding and put in place the next year are going to drive a lot of the ultimate um, uh, evolution of the conferences and what we do about it. I think right now there's just too much change. All these things have to happen. We have to see where it shakes out before we can start really envisioning um, new structures. But I think clearly things have to change. We, they have been changing and um, lots of people working on it, but I think it's a process we're, we're working through with no clear um, answers in sight. And, and how we maintain level playing fields across conferences if, if it is left up to conferences. Um, I mean, the, the misinformation that's being posted in social media on name, image, and likeness in, yeah. in, in the current time frame, 
no one knows what's real and what isn't there, but yet you have a 17 or an 18 or a 19 year old athlete looking at that and, and believing that there is a million dollar NIL deal out there for the taking that's easy coming. Uh, and it's not that easy. Um, and there aren't that many of those out there. Um, but it, you're putting a lot of pressure on very young men and women uh, that aren't well-versed in the business world yet, aren't well-versed in the legal ramifications of what they're doing, aren't well-versed in the financial implications and the tax implications. Um, so we've, we've got a lot of education to do. And, and one thing Penn State has prided itself on on NIL is its, its statement program, which is designed totally for education of those athletes so they know what they're getting into. Um, but it, it's, it's still pretty much the wild, wild west, as they say out there. And, and that's not a good place for the student athlete. No, we're also, you know, constrained by different state laws and interpretations, you know, and so that affects the school's you know, who reside in particular states. So it's been, we, right now we don't really have a standard or a uniform application of the NIL. So that's, that has to continue to evolve what we have some national standard, but that's, it's, it's all complicated and messy at the moment and will be for some time to come, I think, as we work through this. Could not agree more, could not agree more. So put your search committee hats back on for one more time. <clears throat> Colleges and universities need really good leaders who are willing to serve as trustees and do these kinds of searches across Division I, Division II, Division III. Any words of advice to those who might consider becoming a college trustee in the future? Think twice. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I've, I've been doing it nine years and I, I'd love to hear Dave's thoughts, but I think, you know, number one, you have to, you have to have your own personal mission and, and, uh, um, and care about higher ed and the lives you're changing and how that can impact the, your, not only your state, your country, the world, you know, you're educating the citizenry. So I think that you should have that as a personal driving goal. And then I think you had better um, be interested enough to be fully engaged and really immerse yourselves in the issues of higher ed in general and try to keep up as well as your own university. You know, so, and I think that, and it does take a lot of time. I think Dave is an ideal position, retired and living right there. But I think that, you know, you just engagement and preparing and being ready and really wanting to make a difference and add your two cents and, and move the ball forward. Because as you know, there's so many challenging issues and it's not gonna get easier, particularly, if, you know, in affordability. We're not Yale, we're not, you know, Harvard with, uh, you know, multi-billions in endowment and can fund our students. We have a lot of first gen and financial aid is imperative and it makes the difference in get, keeping them in school and graduating them. So these are the big issues, affordability, and that, that doesn't get easier. Oh. Very well said, Barb. And, and just building on uh, identification of one's own personal mission, my advice to an incoming trustee or someone that's interested uh, is not only to be totally engaged and, and understand the time commitment, but making sure that whatever their own personal mission and objectives are fit perfectly with the mission of the institution uh, and understanding the mission of the institution so that as you get to be in a decision-making role as a trustee, you view your decisions through the lens of what is the core mission of the institution and what is my core fiduciary responsibility as a trustee to that institution. 
And if you look at your decisions and your votes on whatever issue comes up, if you look at it through those lenses, you will be a very productive trustee. Great advice and a great place for us to end the podcast. Barb and Dave, thank you so much. This was incredibly helpful, interesting. And you don't—you really get these moments and times where you can actually reflect back and look at an important search, like finding a president. So thank you both for your honesty and also your insight. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Karen. Karen, thank you. I very much enjoyed it.